Amen. Thank you, Rochelle. That was beautiful. And she highlighted in that message and song the central truth of Christianity, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why his death? Why his death? Because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Why his death? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Why his death? He took my place and he took your place as a bloodshed sacrifice. There is not one thing that you can do to clean up your act and be good enough in the eyes of God. Our sin is so deep and so dark that it required the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and God the Son to take away our sins. The death of Christ. What about the burial of Christ? Why the burial of Christ? The burial of Christ because the burial proves that the death was real. Jesus did not swoon or merely pass out on the cross. He died. The hastened preparation of the body included the wrapping of the body. Now, the ladies would go later to finish the job because the Sabbath day was nearing. They had to do so hastily, but it included the wrapping of the body. Why was the wrapping of the dead body of Jesus important? Because on that first Easter Sunday morning, when John and Peter went to that grave, they found the wrapping, they did not find the body. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the resurrection of Christ. It is the resurrection of Christ that propelled the message of the gospel against every possible opposition in the ancient world. It is the fact of the resurrection that moved the apostles to obedience to the risen Christ and to face all of them persecution and ultimately death at the hands oftentimes of the Roman state for the sake of their Savior. And it is their sacrifice that brings us here together this morning. Take your Bible with me and open to the book of Acts, chapter 16. The book of the Acts, chapter 16. Just a matter of hours ago, we returned, a group of us did, from our trip to Greece and Turkey. A very brief visit to Turkey to see the city of Ephesus, but primarily we were in Greece, the Grecian islands, and what a privilege to see these things. Now, it opens your mind and your heart and your imagination when you can go to a place and actually see what the Apostle Paul saw. It puts everything into historic perspective, and while we certainly believe the Bible by faith, it gives us a glimpse of what he saw. For example, the first day we were touring the nation of, uh, the nation of Greece, the city of Athens. And in Athens, they have something called the, the uh, Forum. They have something called the Parthenon. And the Parthenon was a great heathen temple that was dedicated to the god Artemis, a female goddess who was protector of the city. That building remains standing today. And I'm not talking about having been put back together. It all collapsed and was put together. The main part of that building remains standing today, the Parthenon does, after 25 centuries. And why don't you think about that for a moment? That puts us around the year 500 B.C., he said, Pastor Money, what's so impressive about it? Well, that anything would last that long is pretty impressive workmanship. But beyond that, 
that is a building that I looked upon, that those who came on this trip looked upon, and it was a building that the Apostle Paul looked upon. You say, preacher, how do you know? Because in Acts chapter 17, he gets to Athens. And his heart was burdened because the entire city was wholly given over to idolatry. And so you know what he decided to do? He decided to go to a public gathering place, a place called Mars Hill. You say, is that close to the area of the Acropolis? Oh yes, very close. He went to Mars Hill and he preached in Acts chapter 17, the sermon preaching the gospel, highlighting the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I stood at Mars Hill, not realizing how close these two scenes were together. I stood at Mars Hill and as I spoke, I preached to our group that was there at our church and another church. And as I spoke, I could see out of the corner of my eye the heathen Parthenon, the heathen temple. And I thought to myself, I'm standing where Paul stood, and I'm looking at what Paul saw all of these centuries later, listen carefully, because of the dedication of a man who simply could not be stopped. It raised the Apostle Paul's stock in my mind exponentially to understand the thousands of miles that he covered, much of it on foot, the hardships that he faced, and the continual opposition. But one of the places we went was the city of Philippi. You know about Philippi, the book of Philippians, my favorite book of the New Testament. The book of Philippians was written to the church at Philippi. And Acts chapter 16 records Paul's journey to that place. You say, Pastor, why is that unique? Well, everything in the Bible is special. But Philippi is unique because this was the first incursion of the gospel into European soil. This was crossing over from what was Asia Minor and now going into Europe. You say, why did Paul begin this second missionary journey? Well, it really kind of starts back in Acts chapter 15. Paul has returned from the first missionary journey. Perhaps there's a five-year gap between those two, and he is at the church at Antioch. And he decides he needs to make a journey to check out the churches, see how they're doing after a number of years. His missionary journey, the first journey a number of churches planted, he wanted to go back (coughs) and see how they were doing. He decided to take Barnabas again, but him and Paul, Barnabas and Paul, got in an argument. They they weren't going to take John Mark. Now, John Mark was related to Barnabas, and he had kind of abandoned them on the first missionary journey. And Paul said, no, not a good idea to take John Mark. And Barnabas said, it is a good idea. He's my kin people. I want him to come on the trip. Well, the Bible says they got into such a fuss. Now, wait a minute. Pastor Monty, spiritual people fussing? Oh, yeah. Paul and Barnabas were spiritual men, but they got into a big disagreement over this. And so sometimes God uses disagreements to multiply his work. And so the Bible says that Barnabas took John Mark. They sailed to Cyprus, where Barnabas was from. And Paul chose Silas to sail with him just to check up on all the churches that had been planted in the first missionary journey. Well, what was their purpose? Part of their purpose was not only to shepherd and encourage these new churches, but also to deliver the decree where it had been determined by the Jerusalem Council, Acts chapter 15, that circumcision and law-keeping is not necessary for salvation. So I want every eye on, on me right now, every eye. If you think that you're going to heaven because you keep the rules, you are wrong. You're wrong. By the way, 
If you think you keep the rules, you are dead wrong. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. In our opportunity to visit the land of Greece, Greece is a, a Christian, note the quote marks, a Christian nation. They uh, follow the Greek Orthodox Church. And I was interested to know a little bit more about Greek Orthodoxy, so prior to the trip I looked it up and, and uh, it talked about salvation. What do they believe about salvation? Well, here's what they believe. They believe you have to have faith in Christ and, and here's where the problem comes in, and you have to do this, 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 and this, and that salvation, they believe, is a process, not a one-and-done conversion event. Now, I want every eye on me. You are either saved or you are not. You are not in the process of getting saved by your own efforts. The Apostle Paul was clear, it is not by works of righteousness. The Apostle Paul is clear, for by grace are ye saved through faith. And in every instance where someone is converted in the New Testament, they are converted, they come to Christ at a specific point in time, they believe on the Lord and they are saved. They are converted in that moment. Now the process of Christian growth is something we call progressive sanctification. That process takes a while, but you're not earning your salvation. Once you have come to faith in Christ, you are born again and you are saved. That's a very important thing to, to understand. So the purpose was to, to strengthen these churches, to encourage them, to deliver the decree of Acts 15 so that they understood they didn't have to keep the Old Testament law, the, the Gentiles did not have to be circumcised and all of that stuff. And then also a, second, a third purpose was this, to plant churches, to plant churches. So after they had confirmed the churches, after they'd gone around to these Gentile churches and said, hey, don't worry about keeping the law. Don't worry, you guys, about circumcision. By the way, that would worry me if I was a Gentile. Don't worry about circumcision, especially an adult. Don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. You've got no worries there. The Bible says that the churches were encouraged and they increased in number. But then you know what Paul decided to do? He said, okay, we're done with this part of the journey. Now let's go plant a church. That's a good idea, right? Let's go preach the gospel somewhere. Now we're going to get somebody saved. We're going to get out and go, go somewhere. And he got his little group of men together. By now it was Silas and Timothy and Luke would join them in a little bit. He got his group of men together and he said, hey, let's go up to Asia. Let's go to Asia. Now some of you think that means he was going to China or Japan. No, no, no. It simply means he wanted to go to Turkey, which is called Asia Minor. That was his desire. He wanted to go there. He said, good a place as any. There's lost people there. They need churches in Turkey. Let's go up to Turkey. You know what the Bible says in verse number 6? Acts 16, verse 6. Now when they had gone throughout Phrygia and the region of Galatia, this would be southern Galatia, and were forbidden, note these words, forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia. That's weird. How many know there are people who need to be saved in Asia? Sure there were. But somehow, and the Bible doesn't even explain how, Somehow they got the impression, the direct leadership from the Spirit of God, Paul did, that they weren't supposed to go there. So then Paul had another idea. So Paul had a plan. The first plan was to go to Asia. God said, nope, you're not doing that. Paul said, okay, I know where I'm going to go. I'm going to go to Bithynia. Where in the world is Bithynia? Bithynia is in northern Galatia, up way up near the Black Sea. 
I mean, those people have had no contact with the gospel whatsoever. We're going to go up there. But look what it says in verse number 7. After they were come to Mysia, they essayed, they desired to, their plan was to go into Bithynia. Note these words. But the Spirit suffered them not. Now, now, wait a minute. Here's a plan. We'll go to Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Nope, not going there. Well, here's another plan. We're going to go up to Bithynia near the Black Sea. Those people haven't heard anything. Nope, you're not going there. So they got on one of the Roman roads, and they traveled to a place called Troas. By the way, why did God not want Paul to go to Asia and Bithynia? You ever ask yourself that question? Now, in the third missionary journey, Paul would go into Asia. He would go into Asia Minor, which is Turkey. He would plant a number of churches, one of the most prominent of which would be the church at Ephesus. But in the second journey, the the Spirit of God said, no, you ever ask yourself why not? Here's why. And I'm not going to go into this at length. I could talk about it for a long time. There's an ancient prophecy in Genesis chapter 9, verse 26, 27, that talks about the sons of Noah. Noah's prophesying about his sons who would then be the progenitors of the human race after the flood. And Noah says of the Shems, he said, blessed be the Lord God of Shem. The Shemite people are the Semitic people. They are the Oriental people, including the Jews and the Arabs. And and God said they're going to have a special benefit Because the Jewish people who are Shemite, the Jewish people would know the Lord God. Special benefit. Then God said this. He said, Japheth shall dwell in the tents of Shem. Pastor Ronnie, what in the world does that mean? Well, who is Japheth? Most of us, many of us in this room, are Japhethites. Europeans, Japhethites from from Japheth, one one of Noah's sons. And so the Bible then says this strange thing in Genesis chapter 9. It said, Japheth shall dwell in the tents of Shem. Shem, the Jewish people, Semitic people, who would be blessed with the word of God, the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, all that, said, Japheth is going to dwell in those tents. I firmly believe that the gospel had to be brought to Europe after it had been brought to the Jewish people to fulfill the prophecy, Noah's prophecy, of Genesis chapter 9. And so in chapter 16, verses 6 through 11, we have the Macedonian vision. Paul is a Troas. He's wondering which way to go because honestly, Troas is the end of the road. There's nothing but the Aegean Sea. And I can almost picture Paul looking out across the Aegean Sea, and on a very clear day, you would actually be able to see the coastline and the great, great distance, the coastline of Greece from Troas. And I wonder what Paul was thinking. Well, where should I go? There's nowhere else to go. That night he has a vision. It's a simple vision. A man in the vision is a man from Macedonia. How did he know he was from Macedonia? Because they wore a very distinctive garment. Everyone could tell you were from Macedonia. And in the vision, the man from Macedonia simply said this, come over and help us. And the Bible says that Paul was assuredly gathering. In other words, he was absolutely certain that that vision meant they were to depart from Asia Minor and they were to cross the Aegean Sea. Not, not a great distance at this particular point. 
They were to cross the Aegean Sea and they were to move into territory that was virgin territory, fresh, where the gospel had never been preached before on the continent of Europe in order to fulfill Noah's prophecy. You know, Paul had a plan. Bithynia. Paul had a plan. Asia. And God said, no, no, no to your plan. Here is my plan. You'll move to Macedonia. Church, I think this is very, very important. The Holy Spirit is the heavenly administrator of the church. We listen to his voice, not our own plan. And so I think that we as individuals and we as a church are responsible for advancing the gospel, but hear the next words, in accordance to God's plan. And this is exactly what we see unfolding in the book of Acts. The where of the plan. Where? It wasn't Asia. It wasn't Bithynia. It ended up being a city called Philippi, but more of that in a moment. Was the plan ever given by Jesus? Yes. In the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse number 8, Jesus said, But ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. That happened in Acts, chapter 2. But ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and Judea, and then in Samaria, and then unto the uttermost parts of the earth. The uttermost parts of the earth would mean leaving the holy land, God's land, God's particular territory, which is Israel, all of it, according to the, the dimensions that are given in the Old Testament, that is God's property. By the way, it doesn't belong to anybody else. He said, Pastor Monty, we should give away property for peace. That'll never work in a million years, and you don't give away God's land. Israel belongs to God. God said, Israel, the land is mine. That never changes. Paul would leave the Holy Land, and he would go to the uttermost parts of the earth. We, we find that, by the way, Peter doing that exact thing. In Acts chapter 2, Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. Remember Peter, the apostle Peter? He was given the keys to the kingdom. And in Acts chapter 2, by Jesus, and in Acts chapter 2, he preaches, and Jews are saved in Jerusalem and all throughout Judea. In Acts chapter 8, Philip had traveled up to Samaria, preached the gospel. Peter went up there to check it out. Hey, Samaritans, they're kind of half-breeds. They're not really Jews. They're hearing the gospel. I've got to check this out. The Bible says they received the gift of the Holy Spirit just as they had at Pentecost. Peter opened the door to the Samaritans. In Acts chapter 10, remember Cornelius? People, Peter opened the keys to the kingdom of the door to the gospel. In Acts chapter 10, that is the uttermost part of the earth, Cornelius being the first pure Gentile to come to know Christ as Savior. It is no wonder that we read in Romans 1.16, Paul said this, that the plan of evangelism, listen carefully, is to the Jew first and then also to the Greek. Now follow where I'm at. They've already preached the gospel to the Jewish people. We would do more of that generation after generation. They've gone to Samaria, preached to them the despised classes. Now Cornelius has come to Christ. He's a Gentile and Paul is busy planting churches all over the Gentile world. But the priority as far as chronology is concerned is the Jew first. God then directs Paul to leave Asia Minor and to go to a whole different continent, the continent of Europe. 
Paul arrives in a little port town called Neapolis. You can look at this on your Bible map later. He arrives in a little port city. It is really the port city to Philippi, which is located some miles away. When we were on our tour, we were privileged to see the modern city of Neapolis, which is still a port city. We were privileged to see that modern city at some great distance. We were up kind of in what you might call the mountains a little bit. You could see the city at a great distance. Our bus driver pulled over to the side of the road, and he, he motioned to us to go look over the edge of something. There was a guardrail, so nobody would fall over, but to look over the edge. And down that edge, you saw a pathway. I suppose it was maybe 20 or 25 feet wide at the very most, and it was made of marble stone. And it wandered on down to the port city, and then beyond that, it wandered up north. And our guide made this remark. He said this was the exact pathway that Paul walked. These were the precise stones upon which Paul walked when he left Asia Minor and came to Europe, ported at Neapolis, and then went on up into Philippi. Philippi was a real place of firsts. It was a place for the first, the gospel to first be heard in Europe. Now, Paul was going to follow the Jew, the, the Jew first plan. So look at chapter 16, verse number 11. The Bible says, Therefore, loosing from Troas, that's in Asia Minor, we came with a straight course to Samothracia. That's a little island, kind of halfway between Asia Minor and Greece. And the next day to Neapolis. So here we are in that port city of which I just spoke. And from thence came to Philippi. That means walking up that little pathway, which is the chief city of that part of Macedonia and a, and a colony. And we were in that city abiding certain days. There's a problem with that city. It had a very small, almost non-existent Jewish population. Oh, wait a minute, Pastor Monty. Why in the world would Paul go there? The gospel's to the Jew first. Oh, yes. You know what Paul did? It was such a small population, they didn't have a synagogue. It required 10 men to have a synagogue in a given city. There were not 10 Jewish men in that city. And so a group of Jewish ladies and perhaps some other believers, Jewish people, gathered together at the riverside, and Paul knew that's where they would be. And he decided to go introduce himself. That, that's the where of the plan. Paul's initial plan, Asian Bithynia, that was not God's plan. Sometimes God interrupts our plan with a vision, and when he does so, we listen to him. One of the things that can be very crippling is when we get so set in our mind on our personal plan that we can no longer hear the voice of God. Now, I say what I'm about to say with great pleasure. I don't have a plan. Well, wait a minute, Pastor Monty, you need to run this church like you would a business, and that requires you to have a five-year plan. <laughs> Not doing it. Do you know what I'd rather do? I'd rather follow the leadership of the Holy Spirit of God. Those of you who have been with us for a long time, I've been here 25 years for guests that are here with us. Those who have been with us for a long time, we've just seen God do all of this. You could never, ever, ever attribute anything that has happened here to the brilliance, the cunning, the scheming, or the planning of any man, especially not me. But one thing I want us to do as a church 
is to remain very sensitive to the leadership of the Spirit of God. Do you know why? I believe that God has a specific plan. Pastor Mahdi, unveil to us God's plan for the future. I, I, I can't do that. You can ask me that till you're green in the face, blue in the face. It's not blue. Blue in the face, right? Thank you, church. Help me. Come on, help me. This is jet lag talking up here, okay? Help me. I can't even talk, let alone have a plan. Are you kidding? You can ask me about a five-year plan until you're blue in the face. I don't have one of those, but you know what I know we have as a congregation? We have the Holy Spirit of God. Paul made this plan, Asia, Bithynia. God said, no, 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 no. You're going to do something different. And so he went in specifically to Europe by the very plan of God. Well, that's the where of the plan for Acts chapter 16, but what is the what of the plan? What is the what of the plan? Well, I want you to go back to, in your thinking, to the Great Commission. The Great Commission, there are four elements of the Great Commission. They are these. Go ye into all the world. Preach the gospel, baptizing, and then teaching them to observe all things. So listen carefully. The four elements to the Great Commission are these. Go, preach, baptize, and teach. Look at chapter 16, verse 13. And on the Sabbath, the Sabbath day, the day of worship for the Jews, we went out of the city by a riverside. Why? There was no synagogue. Oh, Pastor Monty, you know, there's no synagogue. Well, Paul always went to the synagogue first, and, and there's no synagogue, so maybe he should have just left. Didn't do that. He knew God planned for him to be there. And the Apostle Paul, though his, his custom was to go into the synagogue first, there is no synagogue. So do you know what he did? He was flexible with his plan. God's called me here, there's no synagogue, but I know on the Sabbath day, if there are any Jews, they're going to be down by the riverside, at the very least having a little bit of a prayer meeting. So verse 13, on the Sabbath, we went out of the city by the riverside where prayer was wont to be made. We sat down and spake unto the women which resorted thither. And a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple, she was a businesswoman. She was involved in a very lucrative trade. She was, by the way, from Thyatira. Where is that? That's in Asia Minor. She wasn't a native of Philippi. But Lydia, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshiped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened, that she attended unto those things which were spoken of Paul. And when she was baptized in her household, she besought us, saying, If ye have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and abide there. And she constrained us. What was the plan? Well, the plan was, God's plan, was for Paul to be located now in Philippi in Europe. But what was God's plan about the Great Commission? Go, preach, baptize, teach. Look at verse 13. The Bible says these words, we went. That is fulfillment of the Great Commission in the going part. They left the city of Philippi on purpose to find the Jewish people. By the way, if you ever have opportunity to visit Philippi, I think it's one of the better places to see. I guess it was years ago, many, many, many centuries ago. An earthquake struck and mudslides hit and buried the whole thing. And now they are unearthing the entire thing, and you can walk on the very streets where Paul walked. You can see the very ruins that Paul saw. In an upcoming sermon I'm going to talk about, maybe I'll even have a, a photograph 
of the very place in Philippi where Paul and Silas were beaten illegally. Not a questionable place, but stones. I walked across the entire thing to make sure I crossed the part where Paul must have been. We know precisely where that was. And to look upon that with your own eyes and to understand the sacrifice that was made for the gospel is a remarkable, remarkable thing. Paul went not to the synagogue because there was none. Paul went to the riverside where he knew he would find Jewish people. He went with a purpose and he had a plan of action. He did not leave the job to someone else. Listen carefully. He did not merely pray. He knew the responsibility for the advancing of the gospel rested squarely upon his shoulders. Church family, let me say this. It's our responsibility. Oh, no, Pastor Bonnie, let's just be a little us for no more church and let some big church down the road do all that. Every one of us who knows Christ as Savior is called to be a witness and testimony to this lost and dying world. I hear some people once in a while say, well, Pastor, you know, our church has grown and I kind of like a smaller church. Can I just make a remark about how selfish that is? That's selfish. Well, Pastor Mine, that's just my preference. What about evangelism? What about the preference of reaching every person in our community? See, American Christianity has become more about us than it is about them. American Christianity has become more about what makes me happy than what wins the world. And to be quite honest with you, the attitude of some is, well, it doesn't matter if they all go to hell as long as I have exactly what I want. Nothing could be further from the spirit and the attitude of the New Testament. And so Paul went, even though he couldn't find a synagogue. He said, okay, plan B. We'll go down the river. What's my plan of action? He said, I'm going to tell these people about Christ. Evangelism is the major goal of the New Testament church. The plan to reach people is a plan to reach people where they are. There was no synagogue, so we went to the riverside. He was creative, he was flexible, and he was relevant, listen carefully, because the burden was to reach his generation with the gospel. I think that's vital for us to understand. Sometimes methods change with times and circumstances, don't they? Some of the things that worked in years gone by don't work as good today. Many years ago when I was a student at Bob Jones University, I was part of a group of young men that would go out preaching on the street corner. What? Oh yeah, this was a long time ago. And you know, in the South, that was still culturally acceptable. And so we'd go down on Friday nights, we'd just preach. We had electronic amplification, and we'd preach, and crowds would gather. And by the way, in Anderson, South Carolina, there is a church that was begun off of the converts of that street preaching ministry that exists as a lighthouse to the gospel to this very day. But you know what? That worked in Anderson, South Carolina, circa 1985, 1989. I'm not so sure. Didn't it work? Shannon, you were a member of that church. I'm not so sure that's going to work in downtown Avon. I'm not so sure if I went to the street corner of Danville and just lifted up my voice and started screaming at people. I don't know if that would work. Do you think that would work? Probably not. 
The mission never changes, but sometimes the methods do. And so Paul, he went, but he also did this. He preached, because the Great Commission says, go preach, baptize, teach. He, he preached. Verse 13 says, he spoke unto the woman, the women. Now, it wasn't formal. In a synagogue, he would have been invited to speak on a formal basis because he was a well-known rabbi. This was not formal. In fact, the Bible says they just sat down with the ladies and they started to speak. But I want you to notice this, that gospel work always involves communication of a message. It is not just setting a good example. The message must contain truth. Now, I want everyone to focus. He's preaching, what's the message? The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The lostness and sinful condition of humanity. The only hope in Jesus. The fact that he died on the cross and shed his blood for our sins. He was buried. He rose again the third day. And the only way to salvation is by belief in Christ. That is the message. It's past money. There's a lot of churches that kind of skirt over that. Oh, I know. I know. Change the message and you've lost it all. They preach to them, not in a formal sense, but in a conversational sense. And by the way, they were willing to risk a really negative response. The Jews weren't always happy with the apostles' message, and we'll find out in another message coming up that the Gentiles were even more violent against it. But they spoke. Do you know what we need to do as a church? Not just have a good example, but we need to speak. See, we need to make friends outside this congregation for the purpose of evangelizing. You hear what I just said? Oh, Pastor Monty, I'm not going to make friends with anybody that's not saved because they might sully me. If the Apostle Paul took that position, we wouldn't be here. My goal is to meet people where they're at and then to give them the gospel so that they, they can go to where they need to be. And Paul it sets an example and the Scripture sets an example, reaching out to those who are the closest to you. They got on the level of these women. The Bible says they sat down. Paul said, to the Jews I became a Jew that I might win the Jews. To the Greek I became as Greek that I might win the Greeks. And then he invested time. Because Acts 16 says he went to the river repeatedly. Why? There might be some new people there. He put time into it. He preached the gospel to them. Communication is the tool that the Holy Spirit uses in conviction. Look at verse number 14. The Bible says a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshiped God, she was Jewish, heard us <coughs> whose heart the Lord opened. Now I want you to notice the order. Heard us, then the Lord opened her heart. Well, Pastor Monty, if I just live it in front of them, God will work in their heart. Look at me. It's not enough just to, to live it. You've got to say it. You've got to speak it. Do you know when the Holy Spirit brings conviction upon a lost person? When I'm willing to share with them the love of Christ in the plan of salvation through the gospel. Well, Pastor Monty, that's just you being persuasive. No. All my persuasion in the world can't bring someone to Christ. But when I'm speaking on the outside, if I am faithful with the message... The Holy Spirit who is sent to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and of judgment. The Holy Spirit speaks to that person on the inside as a result to their hearing the gospel on the outside. And the Lord opens their heart by Holy Spirit conviction. And they often, not always, but they often come to Christ. 
I remember before I was saved, hearing the gospel the first time. I didn't get saved the first time I heard it. You know why? I thought it was too easy. What do you mean? All you got to do is believe on Jesus, repent of your sins and believe on Jesus? That sounds too easy. But I heard it over and over again. And as they were preaching on the outside, in, in classes in a Christian school I attended, as they were teaching and preaching on the outside, there was someone who was working on the inside. There was the Holy Spirit of God who was opening my heart. This is exactly what Paul did. He simply communicated the message. The Holy Spirit opened her heart. But God works through the gospel. And what happened in verse number 15, the third part of the Great Commission? The Bible says, when she was baptized in her household. Now, she attended to the words of the Apostle Paul, which means she accepted those words. And then baptism followed belief. Listen carefully. In your New Testament, water baptism by immersion. It's always immersion. We were in, uh, in Philippi looking at a church of the third or fourth century, a church that had been corrupted by Constantine, the Roman emperor. I won't go into all of that, but it was not true Christianity. It was a corruption of Christianity. Yet they still had a baptistry. It wasn't a little sprinkle thing. It was a put them under the water baptistry, okay? Always and without exception in the New Testament, baptism follows belief. It never precedes belief. That is why we don't christen babies. There's not one example of that anywhere in the New Testament. A person comes to personal faith in Christ, and then they follow the Lord in believer's baptism. Baptism is an outward symbol of the inward reality, and so she had accepted the words of Paul. She accepted Christ. She followed the Lord in believer's baptism. By the way, the Bible in the book of Acts and throughout the New Testament says, first you believe, then you're baptized, then you belong. You can join the local church. Verse number 15 is interesting. Drop down there. And when she was baptized in her household, she besought us. It literally means she begged us, saying, If ye have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and abide there. And she constrained us. That home of a brand new, freshly baptized convert became the headquarters of Paul while in Philippi. He said, Pastor Bonnie, why would, why would she just invite these people into their home? They had just led her to Christ, but I think she had another motivation. She wanted to know more. And while these men would go out into the city and evangelize and talk to people about Christ, they would come back to a big home-cooked meal. Pastor Bonnie, what did they have to eat? Well, I was over there for 10 days. The food is fabulous. By the way, if you go for none other reason than to eat, that's spiritual enough. They probably had moussaka. Anyone ever had moussaka? Yeah, it's like, uh, it's like lasagna on steroids. It's really, really good. I don't know what Lydia fixed, but what was her motivation? Not just to house and to provide for them, but I think to ask questions. She's a smart woman. To listen to what was said, to gain more knowledge. And during that time, while they stayed in her home, I'm certain that they taught her many of the things about the Christian faith. Lydia desired fellowship with him, of course, but she also desired understanding. Pastor, what was the result? Listen carefully. This first convert in Europe, she wasn't from there, but it happened in Europe. This first convert in Europe, this lady, Lydia, provided the foundation for one of the strongest and best churches 
in the New Testament. Paul wrote letters to churches, Corinth for an example, oftentimes straightening out the mess. You read in Philippians, Paul didn't have to straighten out any mess except Yodius and Syntyche. These were two ladies in the church. They got into some kind of little tiff on Facebook. (laughs) Paul had to correct that one. But other than that, that is one of the strongest churches of the New Testament. Our book of Philippians, that epistle, is the epistle of joy. And Paul says how they have lifted his heart and encouraged him. Christianity ultimately flourished in Philippi. That strong church was established. Paul wrote to the Philippians. The Philippians supported Paul's expanding missionary work financially. And the Philippians encouraged Paul. How did all that happen? We're here today as a result of that. It happened because a man named Paul set aside his own plans and said, okay, God, I'll go here. It happened because a man named Paul said, okay, my method, I can't go to the synagogue, I'll just go down to the river. It happened because a lady who loved the Lord, she was a Jew, she loved the Lord, she heard the message. It happened because having heard the message, God opened her heart. It happened because after having her heart open, she was baptized, and before they left, a number of believers were baptized and formed the nucleus for a local church. It happened because God had a plan. And I am convinced in my soul that God has a plan for us as individuals in leading people to Christ, in witnessing to them, and for us as a corporate body of believers to continue following the leadership of the Spirit of God. The first convert in Europe, a dear lady named Lydia, led to millions across the European continent, millions across the American continent, and the great heritage of Christianity that we have today. You know, someone wrote a little song, only takes a spark to get a fire going. Spark is the word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when you let that fire burn, it will transform the world. Father, thank you for a glimpse at a place where the first European convert, convert living in Europe, came to Christ. Father, thank you for a man so dedicated to a mission, that he was flexible, that he was willing, that he was absolutely determined. And Lord, as part of our Bible, we hold a little book called Philippians that never fails to make us smile and have joy. I pray, Father, that you'll deal with us in our invitation, Lord. If there is any need in someone's heart tonight or today as they need to come to Christ, I pray, Father, that they would soon come to him. Thank you, Lord, for your love. We pray you'll bless by the Spirit of God the invitation time. In Jesus' name. Stand with me, please, everyone, standing together. We're going to sing our hymn of invitation. Have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. And the message... Today I preach the exact gospel that the Apostle Paul preached, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. You're here today and you say, Pastor Monty, I don't know Christ as my Savior. This is your opportunity to come to Christ, just as did Lydia. If you're wondering where you stand with the Lord, you're not joining the Baptist church or making a commitment to us, but you're saying, I want to come to Christ. Our pastors came to the front. 
for the purpose of showing you from the Bible how you can come to Christ today. Just explaining it a little bit more and you can make your commitment to the Lord. If that's your need, I'm gonna invite you to slip out from where you're standing to come. Don't feel any shame, folks will get out of your way. I wanna encourage you to come talk to one of our pastors. They'll take you somewhere privately and show you in the Bible how to be saved. Maybe say, Pastor Monty, I know the Lord is my personal savior, but I don't have the burden I should have. I believe this, if every born again Christian in America would just tell somebody about Jesus, we could turn this country around in a month the Bible says that the Apostle Paul was accused of turning the world upside down in the course of his ministry. What if there were 700 like him? Maybe God laid someone on your heart. You want to pray for someone who's lost or, or pray for boldness in witnessing. You come. If there's another need or you need counsel, come talk to the pastors. If you'd like to join our church, we encourage you to come as well. You come as we sing together our hymn of invitation, Have Thine Own Way, Lord. Have thine own way. Have thine own way, thou art the potter, I am the clay, mold me and make me after thy will, while I am waiting, yielded and still, have thine own Oh.